Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read there in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, and reading again at verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. There's a Christian publication, I won't mention which one it is in case I get into trouble, but uh, I'm subscribed to it, and at the back of its pages it has uh, various uh, job adverts for different ministry positions. Uh, And I just like looking through them, not that I'm looking to move anywhere, I just find it very interesting to, to read what various ministry positions are going. Here's one. We are looking for a new director to drive forward the ministry expanding the reach and the value of, and then they give the name of their group. The candidate would have experience in church leadership, experience of training and mentoring others in gospel ministry, and a good understanding of the conservative evangelical landscape of England and Wales. The director's core duties would be strategic design, conference planning, resource writing, advocacy, consultancy, and partnership development. Here's another. We are looking for a pastor for evangelism. The role will include a flexible balance of the following. Leading our evangelistic ministry, contributing as part of a team of pastors, pastoring our congregations, provision of preaching, teaching, counseling, safeguarding, assisting our senior pastor and implementing our strategic vision. The successful candidate may be from any denomination and will be godly and biblical, spiritually mature, reformed evangelical, prayerfully servant-hearted, faithfully evangelistic. They will be experienced, theologically trained with ministry experience. They will be team-oriented. They will be competent, able, organized, and committed with sustainable sacrifice to excellent outcomes, whatever that means. I wonder what the Lord thinks about such adverts and the really high criteria that they present. This morning we're continuing our studies in Matthew chapters 8 to 10 and we're focusing on who Jesus calls and what Jesus calls him to. And so we're going to look at this under two headings, the the men and then the mission. First we have the men, look at verses 1 to 4. Here Matthew focuses on the 12 men whom Jesus called. And before going any further, we can remember the context. In the previous chapter, we saw Jesus' comprehensive mission. He went through all the cities and villages, and as he went through them, he taught in their synagogues, preached the gospel of the kingdom, and healed every disease and affliction. We also saw Jesus as the compassionate Messiah. He looked at the crowds who were coming to him, and as he looked at them, he looked at them with compassion, this deep feeling from from even within his bowels, because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And finally, we saw Jesus' clear mandate. He noted that the harvest was plentiful. The people were ripe and ready to be gathered into his kingdom. But at the same time, he noted that the laborers were few. There was a need for workers to go and gather them in. And so he told his disciples to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out, to thrust out such workers, such laborers into the harvest field. And now in Matthew 10, we find ourselves at a commissioning service. Matthew begins by drawing our attention to the summons. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Jesus calls to himself 
his 12 disciples. Now we have already noted in our studies that Jesus really has two groups of followers in Matthew's gospel. You've got an outer circle of followers, uh, people who are watching what he's doing, people who are listening to what he's saying, that they are interested but they are uncommitted, and then you've got an inner circle of followers, the 12, who have committed themselves to him. And Jesus now calls this inner circle, the 12, uh, to himself. Matthew continues by drawing our attention to the equipping. Look at verse 1 again. Having called the twelve to himself, Jesus gives them authority, gives them power over unclean spirits and over every disease and affliction. Back in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we were confronted with the authority, the power of Jesus over disorder, over demons, over disease, and over death. And now in Matthew 10, Jesus is giving that same authority, that same power to his disciples. Matthew concludes by identifying who the twelve are. Look at verses 2 down to 4. They are designated here as apostles, meaning sent ones, and they're divided into six pairs. We have Simon and his brother Andrew. Simon is also given the name Peter, meaning the rock. He is a, he is a very impulsive man, a very passionate man, a, a man who's very quick to make a firm judgment and then very shaky when it comes to following it through. Andrew is less prominent than his brother. He is more likely to be found pointing people and taking people to Jesus. And both of these men, Simon and Andrew, are fishermen. We then have James and John, the son of Zebedee. Like Peter and Andrew, they are fishermen, though we can see from the Gospels that they're actually more prosperous than Peter and Andrew were. They seem to have made quite a good living with their father Zebedee. Uh, They were very impatient men. They were very hot-tempered men, very impetuous men, men whom Jesus uh, gave the nickname the Sons of Thunder to. We then have Philip and Bartholomew. Like Andrew, they're always in the background. They're always pointing people to Jesus. But they're not leadership material. You never see them making a decision. You never see them leading from the front. They're, They're always in the background. We then have Thomas and Matthew. Uh, Thomas is a man who is famous, we might say infamous, for doubting the resurrection of Jesus. But friends, never overlook the fact that Thomas loved Jesus. In fact, I often think, and I've said it before, that Thomas most likely loved Jesus more than any of the other disciples. Because in John chapter 11, the disciples are preparing to go near Jerusalem with Jesus. And Thomas says, let's just go with him that we might die with him. He really loved Jesus. And Matthew, the author of this book, is a former tax collector for Rome. His contemporaries, his community, would have still viewed him as something of a traitor and a turncoat. We then have James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. James is identified here as the son of Alphaeus, meaning we don't know anything about this man, James, apart from he wasn't James, the son of Zebedee. He was James, the son of Alphaeus. And then there's Thaddeus. Now, Thaddeus isn't even a proper name. Thaddeus is a nickname, a a, a bit like uh, Spangy, a bit like Keg, a bit like Orica, these kind of names that people were given. And the name Thaddeus means, now wait for it, mummy's boy. You think, man alive, wouldn't you love to be going about town playing on the football pitch and they're shouting, mummy's boy, cross the ball. But, But that's Thaddeus. And finally, we have Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot. Simon was also known as 
a zealot, a man who was full of nationalistic pride and prejudice, a man who despised anything or anyone that wasn't Jewish. Judas is an intriguing character. He is very much a trusted member of the group, a man who was the treasurer of the group. And yet Matthew is very clear in writing here that he was the man who betrayed Jesus. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we are being reminded that Jesus equips those whom he calls. Jesus equips those whom he calls. That is what we see in Matthew chapter 10. In the next few verses, we'll see Jesus commissioning these men to go on a preaching tour. And what we need to pay attention to at this stage is just how ordinary these men were. Leon Morris writes that they weren't outstanding people. John Calvin writes that they were men of obscurity and no repute. They were essentially nobodies. Nobodies who came from nowhere worth speaking about. But what Matthew highlights is that they were men who were called and then equipped, given authority by Jesus. And that is so important for us to take on board today. Every Christian, every disciple, every follower of Jesus is called to play a part in Jesus' kingdom mission. We'll come back to this in a few minutes. And what we must never lose sight of is the glorious truth that Jesus doesn't always call the equipped. But he does equip those whom he calls. Ligon Duncan writes, all true Christian ministry is done not in our power but beyond our power. All true Christian ministry is done beyond our personal resources. And that means that if we are going to do Christian ministry, we must do it in dependence upon the Lord. Our best strategizing, our brightest minds, our best plans will not bring us success in and of themselves. We must be prayerfully dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ because his grace accomplishes its goal. His gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not our designs, not our particular strategies. You might be sitting here today and you are feeling all too aware of your weaknesses. You might be sitting here today and you're feeling all too aware of your limitations. You would love to do something for the Lord. You would love to do anything for the Lord. You would love to be involved in the promotion of the Lord's cause, the proclamation of the Lord's kingdom, but you feel so inadequate. You feel so empty. You feel so useless. You look at other people in this building even, and you think to yourself, the Lord will use the likes of them, but he'll never use the likes of me. I can't even pray at the prayer meeting. I can't even tell my boyfriend or girlfriend that I'm a Christian. I can't even tell my work colleagues where I was on Sunday. And today I want to put it to you that these obscure and ordinary men in Matthew chapter 10 remind us that the Lord is more than capable of equipping those whom he calls. He's not looking for those who are equipped. He's looking to equip those whom he calls. And so as we think about this, I simply want to ask you the question, each and every one of you, the question, have you opened yourself up to the Lord's call? Will you open yourself up to the Lord's call? Have you you said to the Lord, here I am, send me. Here I am, will I do? You might not think very much of yourself. 
but I'm sure Thaddeus didn't think very much of himself either. Well, we move from the men to the mission. Look at verses 5 down to 15, where Matthew focuses on the mission that Jesus called these 12 men to. Verses 5 and 6, we see where Jesus tells his disciples to go. He begins by telling them where they're not to go in verse 5. They're to go nowhere among the Gentiles, the non-Jews in the north, and they're to go into no town of the Samaritans in the south. He continues by telling them where they're to go in verse 6. They're to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Back in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looked at the harassed and helpless crowds, saw them as being like sheep without a shepherd, uh, and here he tells his disciples to go to these lost sheep, to go to the harassed and helpless house of Israel. Now at this point we can ask ourselves the question, why does Jesus limit the disciples' mission to the Jews only? Why does Jesus limit the disciples' mission to the Jews only? Well, the reason is very simple and it's very practical. We must never lose sight of the fact that this is the disciples' first mission on their own. They're not going with Jesus. This is their first mission trip on their own. And so Jesus sends them on a relatively easy trip to begin with before he'll launch them out to the more difficult areas such as the Samaritans and the Gentiles. I remember the same thing happening to me when I started preaching in 2006. One of our elders in Roskeen sent me to a, to a very elderly congregation about five miles from my parents' home. It had less than ten people. It wasn't glamorous. But I often think to myself how beneficial it was, how helpful it was to start preaching in a place and to a people that I was familiar with. Rather than if the Lord had said, go off to Kenneth Street, or go off to Bath, or, or go off to, I don't know, St. Helens Bishopsgate in London, or one of these big congregations that you don't really know anything about. The Lord said, you're going to small congregation five miles from your parents' home. And so it is with the disciples. He starts them off in an easy environment. In verses 7 down to 10, Jesus tells his disciples what they're to do. He speaks to them about their announcement. Look at verse 7. They must go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and they're to proclaim to them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They must announce that the saving rule of God has come and it has come with Jesus. He also speaks to them about their activities. Look at verse 8. As they preach, they're to heal the sick, they're to cleanse the lepers, they're to raise the dead, they're to cast out demons with the authority that Jesus has just given them. These acts will confirm that the kingdom of heaven is really at hand. That Jesus has come with the kingdom. These signs will confirm uh, that the kingdom is there. These, these miracles are, are really signs. That's what they are. They're showing that the effects of sin and the fall are being undone. They're being reversed. And Jesus speaks to the disciples about their attitude. Look at verses 8 to 10. They have received the message of the kingdom from Jesus without having to pay for it. And now they're to proclaim the message of the kingdom about Jesus without looking for payment. Not only that, they're to not go out and acquire gold or silver or copper for their belts as they prepare for their mission trip. Not only that, they're not to go out and acquire a bag or two tunics or sandals or a staff as they prepare for their mission trip. Instead, they're to simply go out with the words, the laborer deserves his food, ringing in their ears. 
In short, these men must display an attitude of urgency and trust. They're not to waste time looking for provisions. Haste and urgency is of utmost importance. Haste and urgency is the first order of the day. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. These men are simply to go out believing and trusting that God will provide. They're to go out as laborers for the Lord of the harvest, and the Lord of the harvest will ensure that his laborers will not be in need. Daniel Doriani writes that Jesus' word is simple. Trust God and get going. Trust God and get going. Can I just say to you, friends, how often is it that we don't do anything for the Lord? We spend so much time planning and preparing that we never actually get round to the actual business. Sometimes we just need to trust God and get going. I know that applies to myself. I can speak about outreach. I can speak about evangelism. Sometimes you just need to get going. And it come, that applies to every other activity in the congregation. We can spend hours in Kirk sessions. We can spend hours in Deacon's Court speaking about what we, what we want to be doing, what we could be doing. Sometimes we just need to trust God and get going. Finally, Jesus tells his disciples what they should expect. Look at verses 11 down to 15. He tells them that they will be received by some. Verses 11 to 13, as they go into the different towns, they're to seek out someone who is worthy. That person will prove their worth by their welcome of the disciples and their message. And when the disciples stay uh, at such a person's house, they're to remain with them until the mission is over. In other words, they're not to go shopping around. They're not to go thinking, can I get a better house? Can I get a better host? They are to make do with the first thing that is offered to them. If the house receives them, Jesus says, then they are to allow their peace, the blessing and benediction of God to come upon it. But if the house refuses them, then they are to let their peace, the blessing and benediction of God return to them. And Jesus builds on that last point by emphasizing that his disciples will not be received by everyone. Look at verses 14 and 15. He speaks about those who will not receive them and will not listen to their words. And he tells them that in such cases they are to shake the dust from their feet. In Jesus' day, when pious Jews would return from, their, their, from being in a foreign country, they would shake the dust from their feet as a way of saying that the foreign lands that they had been in were polluted. They were ripe for the judgment of God and they wanted no part with him. They didn't want to identify with these foreign lands. And here's Jesus and he's telling his disciples that if they are not received by Jewish towns, then they must treat them like pagans, polluted and ripe for judgment. And Jesus closes by making a very solemn statement concerning this. Look what he says in verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In the Old Testament, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah served as a great example of the Lord's catastrophic judgment coming upon a people who rejected him and persisted in their sin. And Jesus is making it clear that on the day of judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah will fare better than any Jewish town that has refused to listen to or receive his messengers and his message. Very solemn. 
very solemn. Well, as we consider these verses, friends, we're being presented with a word of command. That is what we see in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus calls his disciples to himself, and having called them, he commands them, he commissions them to go and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven, the saving reign of God, is at hand. God's long-promised salvation has come with Jesus. And friends, that is the command that we have also been given. We are not called to raise the dead. We are not called to cast out demons. We are not called to heal the sick. We are not called uh, to, to cleanse the lepers. But friends, we are called to proclaim the kingdom. We are called to proclaim the saving rule of God that has come with Jesus. That is the command. That is the commission that every disciple, every follower of Jesus has been given. We are an ordinary people who have been given an extraordinary message about an extraordinary God and his extraordinary salvation to proclaim. I don't know what you've been through over the past few years. I don't know what you've been through over the past few months, the past few weeks, the past few days, the past few hours. And it might be that you've become discouraged in the work of evangelism. It might be that you've become discouraged in the work of seeking to advance the gospel. It might be that you've become discouraged in the work of seeking to proclaim the kingdom. And today I want to encourage you to remember, friends, that this is a command that you have been given. That I have been given from the Lord himself. I I can feel very discouraged at times. I think I don't know what more to say to certain people that I meet on my travels, and maybe you feel the same. But friends, this is a command that we have been given. But as we consider these verses, we're also being presented not just with a word of command, but a word of caution. Again, that's what we see in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus makes it clear that some will receive his messengers and enjoy peace. Meanwhile, others will refuse, they will reject his messengers and endure punishment. And that is so important for us to hear today. There is a word for you if you're a Christian, if you are a follower, a disciple of Jesus. These verses are reminding you that your evangelism, your proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom might be well received by some people, but they're also reminding you that your evangelism, your proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom might well be rejected by other people. Jesus is saying, be prepared for that. It's not that you're doing something wrong. That is to be expected. But there is also a word of caution for you if you're not yet a Christian today. Not yet a follower, a disciple of Jesus. My hope, friends, is that these solemn verses might be a a firm but gentle wake-up call to you this morning. J.C. Ryle once wrote, Men are apt to forget that it does not require great open sins to be sinned in order to ruin a soul forever. They have only to go on hearing without believing listening without repenting, going to church without going to Christ, and by and by they will find themselves in hell. And so this morning, friends, I want to encourage you, I want to urge you to embrace the King of Kings. I want to encourage you, I want to urge you to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ He's the one who offers you, you, 
a place in his eternal kingdom as his gospel is preached in your hearing. You say to yourself, I don't know if I'm elect. You say to yourself, I don't know if I am chosen. You say to yourself, I don't know if I am good enough. You say to yourself, I don't know if I could ever be a Christian. Can I say to you today, friend, that if the gospel has been preached in your hearing, that is an invitation, it is an instruction, it is an, it is an imperative from the Lord Jesus Christ that there is an offer for you. There is an offer for you, friend. And so I simply want to encourage you today to receive this king. Receive that place in his kingdom. I can't make it any more simple than that. When the gospel is preached in your hearing, the king is saying, Come.